we're doing a few messages on difficult passages in the scriptures. And so there's not much I can teach y'all that you don't already know. So I just try to stir up your remembrance on the things you already know. Because, you know, lest you forget. And sometimes, you know, with the scriptures, if you don't use it, you, you lose it. So I hope that uh, you haven't lost everything. But take your Bible and turn to the book of James and chapter 1. James chapter 1. There is, no doubt, a very famous portion of Scripture that's found in the book of James. But it seems like everybody seems to forget there's a chapter 1 before chapter 2. And there's a chapter 3 and 4. And they seem to forget there's a chapter 5. So can faith save him? Always comes back to that interesting portion of Scripture. Faith without works is dead. So what does it really mean? So let's just take a little side trip. It's really the main highway, believe it or not. But everybody thinks that James chapter 2, verses 14 down through there is that's the main highway and the others are just, uh, you know, tributaries. You know, they're not uh, the main road. I believe that when you got chapter 1 and chapter 3 and 4 and 5, those are the main teachings of the, of the book. Chapter 2 is only a brief little capsule of what all the rest of it's talking about. And if you forget all of that, you don't see the purpose of those verses sitting right in the middle of all of this. So it's only just a brief explanation of all the other. So you can't forget that. And if you just go to James chapter 2, which most people do, when especially you're talking to an individual about salvation, they always seem to think that you're justified for salvation by your works. Because don't you know, faith without works is dead. So you've got to have your works. But let's just pretend for a second you did have to do good works to go to heaven. If you did. Doesn't the, now the next question come down is, what good works? How many? How consistent do you have to be? When do you know you've done enough? And when do you know you haven't done enough to know whether or not you are really saved or that you just hope you're saved or think you're saved or you know you're not saved at all? It really opens up a whole can of worms. And buddy, you're not going to like what you get into when you get into that. And that is what produces all the different religions of the world. Because they have different sets of works. And how you can know you're saved because you did this good work or that good work. And how you can know you can lose it. And everyone who believes that you're saved by your works believes you can lose your salvation. Isn't that amazing? Here in James in chapter 1, I want you to notice something. We are talking about works, but go to the place where it first talks about it. 
And it says there in uh, verse 2, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations. He said, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. The trying of your faith worketh patience. In other words, your faith is supposed to produce something. As you learn something from God, it produces something in your life. And if it's not producing something in your life, then the faith that you have is not working for you. See, when you go to heaven, it's because you trusted Christ to do something. He will produce your salvation because you trusted him to do a work. He did the work. And all you are doing is accepting the work that he did. So for salvation, yes, you're always justified by your faith in Christ in his work. Salvation is never you trusting your work, because your work doesn't count. So once you have done that and you become a child of God, God says, now I'm going to allow you while you live in this world to be under a lot of testings, temptations, and God permits that. But he wants you now as a child of God to grow in the Lord. So he says here in verse 4, but let patience have her perfect, and there's that word again, work. So yes, faith without works doesn't start in James chapter 2. It's starting over here in chapter 1 to the believer, not to the lost man. But it says to let this work mature in you so that you can produce that which God wants to produce. So that you, in verse 4, are complete, mature, lacking nothing in your life. So God has to be the one that knows what testings you need in your life, what temptations He will allow to come your way, though He does not tempt any man to sin. But God can allow things to reveal to you what you need to strengthen in your life. God wants you to be strong in every area of your life. You see, some people are very strong in certain areas and weak in other areas. The key to being a long-lasting child of God in this world is that you're strong in every area of your life. And if you're not, you're not going to, to make it because Satan will find that weak point in your life. See, when Satan wants to defeat you, he doesn't look at the strong points in your life. He finds the weak point. As it says concerning the Amalekites in the Old Testament, they watched for those that were stragglers, the ones that didn't keep up, the complainers, the whiners. And that's the ones he can jump on and destroy. But anyway, he says now, concerning your faith, let him in verse 6, let him ask in faith. Because you're going to have testings happen in your life. You can't solve. You can't answer. Temptations can become great. Testings can become great. So God wants the man to be tested that your faith can increase so that you are stronger in the Lord. But he says, let him ask in faith, not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine that comes along, or like a, you know, the, the wind that blows and tosses you to and fro. So then he says here in verse 8, a double-minded man 
is not a strong man. A double-minded man is not a faithful man. A double-minded man is not that consistent. A double-minded man is he's wishy-washy. Doesn't know what he believes and why he believes it. So he's not a strong man. So God says in verse 7, don't let that man think he shall receive anything of the Lord. So as you go down through here, you see where God says now in verse 11, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. Now we're already talking about the believer, so we're not talking about how to get to heaven. We're talking about God's children. And he says, blessed or happy is that man that endures temptations, for he shall receive something. See, we're talking about you doing something and you receiving something. You shall receive something, as he says here, the crown of life. That's not salvation. The crown is a reward, and the rewards are earned. See, salvation is always the gift of God. It's always free. It's always because you have placed your faith in Christ in the work that he did. See, the work he did was he went to the cross because he lived a perfect life. He didn't have to pay for his sin. He had none. He died for us, came back from the dead, and we're accepting what he did as our payment for our sins. So it's not salvation by my works. So nowhere does God say trust in your works to get you to heaven. We trust in his work to get us to heaven. Now we're talking about a totally different issue. And this issue deals with your service to the Lord. It's to the child of God serving God as he ought to. So he says that God has promised things to them that love him. So it's talking here about you doing the work because God wants you to receive something. So he's talking about receiving rewards, and of course, because he's promised things to those that love him. So loving him is the motive that you and I are supposed to use as the reason why we do what we do. Why? Because I love the Lord. Why do I go to church? Because I love the Lord. Why do I study his word? Because I love the Lord. Why do I witness? Because I love the Lord. You take away your love for the Lord and all this becomes drudgery. It's just like being under the law. You can do the same thing, but it becomes legalistic. And God doesn't want you to be legalistic. He wants you to have that freedom where you do it because I love him. Look what else he says here. In verse 16, there's three words that's mentioned here. Do not err, brethren. Because so many of God's children will err. He says, do not err, my beloved brethren. And the reason is, is because don't blame God. Don't blame God when you're tested or tempted. As though God is the instigator of all the evil that happens to you. God can permit certain things, but remember... God knows every one of you, and he knows me. And you may have messed up somewhere along the line by saying, Lord, I want to serve you. I love you. Do with me anything that you want. Boy, did you do it. Now you've really messed up. Now you've really gone too far. So what do you think God's going to do? You think if you want to be used, God wants to use you? So God is going to teach you things because there's so much you need to learn. 
Do not parents see the, the need for teaching their children certain principles of how to live and how to, you know, work? And so there's all kinds of things that God has done for us. And so he makes this statement that God is going to give us all these wonderful opportunities to serve the Lord. Look in verse 20. Verse 20 talks about, for the wrath of man worketh not, worketh not. So we're talking about things that are profitable and things that are not profitable. See the verse right before verse 9 where it says there, a 19, excuse me, I'll get it right here in a minute. You see there in verse 19, wherefore my beloved brethren, let every man, and so he's talking to the believer, swift to hear, and then he makes this statement, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for wrath worketh not the righteousness of God. So we're talking about God's children producing the righteousness of God in his life. And so that means that when you're tested, you're supposed to produce the righteousness of God in your life. When you're tempted to sin, you're supposed to produce the righteousness of God in your life. Can't you see that? It's so simple and it's clear. It's written right there in black and white. It's the Word of God. So then he makes this statement down in verse 22. But be ye, and underline that word, doer. You see, it's one thing to be saved and have eternal life and to say you love the Lord. If you love the Lord... Live like you love the Lord. And how do you prove to God or to anybody that you love the Lord? By the things you do, the choices you make. Every choice, every decision reveals something because there's a cause and effect. Why did you do that? Why do you think the way you think? Why do you live the way you live? Why do you say the things you say? So God's word is very simple, very good. But it's talking about the believer and what he does. The believer. Look there in verse 23. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, is like unto a man beholding his natural face in the glass. So there is to be the doing of what God says. You see there in verse 25. Whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and get this, continueth therein. He being not a forgetful here, but a doer of the, here's that word, work. So you see, you have a lot of things that God says about work before you ever get to James chapter 2. James chapter 2 is only a little capsule of everything else that he's talking about in this book. He's talking to the believer about producing the righteousness of God, about having the fruit of in your life that you should have, and that God uses testings and trials, temptations, to produce the righteousness. So God says that he allows these things to produce, of all things, patience in the child of God. You see, if you're patient, you don't get soon angry, filled with wrath, you're slow to speak, but whenever you are like, a stick of dynamite. Short fuse and long fuse. When the Bible talks about in the book of Galatians, long suffering. 
There's some people are not long-suffering. They're not long-fused. I mean, you just strike the match, and buddy, they explode. Because they can just, you know, see it coming. So, but he deals a lot with the patience. That's mentioned in verse 3 of chapter 1 of James. Look over there very quickly and look in chapter 5 of the book of James. And notice what he says in verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. I wonder how long we're supposed to be patient. Unto what? Until the Lord comes. That's going to be a long time. Or until you die, I guess we could throw that in there, wouldn't you? Look at the last part of this. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and hath long patience. See that word patience again? Look in verse 8. Be also patient. Patient. God wants his children to learn patience. And you learn patience by learning how to trust God. Learning how to wait upon the Lord. Because you know he careth for you. Impatience means you worry, you fret, you get filled with anger and bitterness, and you fall apart. But if you'll learn to be patient, and look at something else while you're at there in chapter 5. Look what he says in verse 19, brethren, if any of you do err from the truth. See, we just read that in chapter 1, do not err, brethren. Because of thinking something that's not true, not understanding the reason for the trials and the testings that you have, don't you understand that every good and perfect gift cometh down from the Father above? And that in chapter 3 talks about the wisdom of God versus the wisdom of man, and that the wisdom of God is peaceable? We'll look at that maybe in just a minute. But look what he says there in verse 20. Let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his ways shall, and you ought to underline it, save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. This is to the believer. Not talking about the lost man. Talking about God's children and some of God's children that go astray. Now, when you read chapter 4, he says, you adulterers, Christians that are not living right, not doing right. And you notice when he says here, save a soul from death. Whenever it asks that question in James chapter 2, remember it makes this statement, shall faith save him? If you're talking to the believer, are we talking about God saving us from hell? That's not the issue. It's not the context. We're not even discussing that. We're talking about God saving you, and can faith save you? And the answer there is no. Because we're not talking about salvation. We're talking about can it save you from death? Can it save you from the chastening? Can it save you from God's anger? Can it save you from the error of your ways? Just having, well, I got faith. No, God says, I'm going to reward you. And your discipline is so important. Now, go back there to the book of James chapter 1. 
And look what he says down in verse 26. Verse 26 says, And if any man among you seems to be religious, bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. In other words, here's a believer that doesn't bridle his tongue, but he deceives. You and I are talking about what a man says and what a man does. And therefore, he is going to be either justified in your eyes as he's a righteous man or he's uh, not doing the right thing. He's living like a, a lost man. Can God's people live like lost men? Yes, they can. So God says his religion, the outward manifestations of his life. That's why you see some people say, well, he, he, he doesn't have any religion at all. And there's other people who live very religiously because you're judging by what they're doing. So in James chapter 2 and verse 1, he says, my brethren... Have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ with respect to persons. In other words, if you believe what God says and what Jesus did, then live like Jesus did. And Jesus didn't have respect to persons. He wasn't that way. So we're supposed to live, think, and judge the way that he did. And then he uses an illustration about somebody that comes into your midst and they look like they're very rich. And then you have somebody that looks like they don't have anything. Which one do you cater to? Who would you treat with more respect? Some bum that walks in off the street, an old wino, or somebody that just drove in in their, you know, Lamborghini and got diamonds all over and they're just rich looking and all that. Would you treat them differently? If you do, you're wrong. You're judging. And God says you're impartial in your judgment. It's not to be that way. I don't even want to treat an adult differently than I treat a child. I want to treat them all the same. Because to me, if that child has trusted Christ, that child's a, it's a child of God, and so is this old person. I want to treat everybody with respect. That's a child of God. If they're lost... I'm still supposed to treat them with dignity and respect. I think it's just what we're supposed to do. But as you go down through here, he's talking about the things that you say, and the things that you do. And so that's why he says down in verse 12 of chapter 2, So speak ye, and so do, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. Because God says in verse 13, For he shall have judgment without mercy. We're not talking about the lost man here. We're talking about the believer. So God is going to judge the Christian because of the things he says and what he does. And God is going to be fair in what he does. And so that's why when you read in chapter 2 and verse 14, what doth it profit my brethren? So there's some things that we say and do that has no profit. And just to say, well, I have faith, but you don't treat people the way God wants them to be treated. It's not profitable for them, and guaranteed, it's not profitable for you. 
Even when you read in the book of Titus in chapter 3 when it talks about, be careful to maintain good works, for these are good and profitable unto men. You see, there's things that are profitable. They have a good reason for it. It helps. It enlightens. You become an example of the Christian life. Somebody is watching to see what you say and what you do. People are learning from you. They're learning from me. And sometimes we don't always give the, the best impression. So look there in James in chapter 3. Notice in verse 1 where he says, My brethren, be not many ministers or masters, knowing that we, and you ought to underline it, shall receive. So you're going to receive some. See, God wants you to receive rewards. God wants you to receive the patience you're supposed to have. But when you become a teacher, it's even worse. You will receive the greater condemnation because you affect more people. You see, the higher you climb in your abilities to be used by God, well, the bigger the climb, the bigger the fall. And the bigger the fall, the bigger the splash. And the bigger the splash the more people that are affected. You can go down here and drop a little old pebble into the water and you will still see it has a little rippling effect. Maybe not a lot. But now, if something happens like a, what do they call it, a tsunami? Does that cause a ripple effect? So you want to be greatly used by God? Well, God knows the higher He lifts you up the bigger the fall, the more people are affected. So teachers or preachers, those who teach the Word of God have a greater responsibility because you're affecting more people. And so he says here, shall receive the greater condemnation. So can just having faith save you from that? No, faith cannot save you from that. And that's the purpose of all of this. So now, uh, go back there to verse 14 of chapter 2. What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? Save him from what? We're not talking about hell. Can it save him from the judgment, the chastening hand of God? No, it cannot. If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, none of you say unto them, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding. You give them not those things that are needful to the body. What doth it profit? See, all of this is explained in the Scriptures before you ever get here. Then he's trying to get you to reason. Do you understand how important it is for a child of God to produce good works? Because by your works, God's going to reward you. The things that you say and do because you ministered unto the brethren, because you did something. You're not going to be rewarded because you just sit soaking sour and never do anything with your life. It's living out the Christian faith. And many people never talk to anybody about the Lord. They don't live the way they should. They don't support missions. They don't give the radio ministry. They don't support the church. They don't. Do but I'm a good Christian. No, you're not. You're not a good Christian unless you live like a good Christian. You say, well, that makes me mad. So be it. 
I'm not running a popularity contest. I don't do that. To me, that's playing a game. I have a responsibility to be honest with you, to tell you truth, and then trust the Lord that you'll do what you're supposed to do. And if you need to correct something in your life, what should you do? Correct it. You say, well, that doesn't apply to me. Then let it go right over your head. It shouldn't bother you when I order. And everybody's happy. So he makes a statement here in verse 17. Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead or fruitless. No profit. Being alone. It says it's dead. Being alone. It's still there. It's like a battery in your car. But it has no juice in it. But you still have a battery. But it's not producing anything. It won't start your car. It's not working. You may know Christ as your Savior. You love the Lord. And you might be able to quote every verse in this Bible. But if you're not living this book, you're not walking with God and you will not be right. So he says, the chastening hand of God, are you going to escape that? Are you going to live like you please and get away with it? No, you can't. No, you won't. Even though I try to be as strong as I possibly can on the salvation by grace without works, doesn't mean that I believe that it doesn't matter how you live. It does matter. It matters an awful lot. Though it cannot affect your salvation because that was you trusting Him for your salvation. That's justification by faith alone. And so when Romans talks about Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness, then he talks about, well, what hath Abraham found? Well, he found that if he just simply believed in the Lord, uh, God would give him to his righteousness. And so God's righteousness was put to his account. Faith without works. But here, we're not talking about salvation. We're talking about service. And here, God goes back, and about, say, 13 to 15 years later, He's talking about when Abraham offered up his son upon the altar. See, the first time, when he was justified by faith without works, it was just, say, count the stars and the seed and understanding about the what God was going to do, and that was his salvation point. And this is talking about a different issue. Now he's talking about when he offered up his son upon the altar. That was a demonstration of his faith in the Lord. This is how he was living his life. This was what was important. This is what his service was. So whenever he's talking about Abraham here, he's talking about a different time, a different situation, and this is about service. So a man is justified by works, and a man is justified by works and faith. You see, salvation alone is justified by faith without works. And for service, he's justified by faith plus his works. No contradiction. One is talking about salvation. The other one is talking about service. So there is no problem whatsoever in the Word of God. So he makes this statement here in verse 18. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I'll show thee my faith by my work. Show me your faith in God without living. You can't do it. Only way I can show my faith in God is by how I live. I show what I believe. 
And when he says, a man may say, verse 19, thou sayest, verse 20, O vain man. Down in verse 22, seest thou. In verse 24, ye see, it's all about people being justified in the eyes of others. People seeing your life, the attitude that we have, things we say, places we go. We have to be careful all the time. So then he makes a statement in verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? Of course he was. When he was saved? No. When he offered up Isaac. This is years, years later, see. When he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar. Seest thou how faith wrought with his works? And by faith was a work by faith was made perfect or mature. Don't you want your faith in the Lord to mature? Where you become a strong, godly individual. See, is this different than what we just read in chapter 1? It's no different at all. It's just an explanation of it. It's just an illustration of an Old Testament saint because he's written to the, the, the believers here about what has happened. You see there in verse 1, when he says in verse 1 of chapter 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. So this is a letter to others, the believers, the Jewish people. And he's talking to them. So is there any wonder why he would not use Abraham? Seems like every time they're talking about that, we'll wind up talking about Abraham. So he says there in verse 24, Ye see then how that by works of man is justified. Now, are we talking about salvation? No, we're not talking about that. Are we talking about service? Yes, we're talking about service. So a man is justified by his works. And so you want to grow in the faith? All right, God's going to allow temptations to come. Your faith is going to be tried. Are you going to win or lose? Succeed or fall apart? Are you going to produce fruits of righteousness through all those temptations? And everybody has them. That's why toward the end of this it says, concerning a man like Elijah, a man of like passion, just like us. A man that could pray and get results. But if you'll look there very quickly, you'll notice something else. See there in verse 11, excuse me, verse 10 of chapter 5, where it says, Take my brethren, the prophets, who have spoken in the name of the Lord, for an example of suffering affliction. Oh, is this what we've been talking about? Aren't testings and trials and all the affliction, because doesn't it? Test us. Well, look what he says. And of, oh, there's that word patience again. And of patience. And then he makes this statement, Behold, we count them happy which endure. That word happy is the same as being blessed of God. Blessed are ye when you do what God says to do. Blessed, blessed, blessed. He says in verse 11, Behold, we count them happy which endure. You're talking about children of God enduring all the trials and tribulations that you're going to have and still come out on the other side like gold been refined through the fire. You see, God wants to strip away out of your life all the pride. 
God wants his children to be humble, to be submissive to the will of God, where you don't have to challenge God every time you turn around. Don't have to argue with God all the time. And so he says, ye have heard of the patience of Job. Are we talking about how to get saved? We're talking about how to live. God's children on how to live. You have heard of the patience of Job. You've seen the end of the Lord. In other words, the end result of the testing on Job. How did he come out? I think he came out all right. You and I are supposed to have the patience and wait on the Lord. We don't have to see how God's going to do what God's going to do, but we must believe and are supposed to believe that God is going to do something. Do you believe that? And with patience, you wait, and you just keep doing right. And you don't have vengeance for vengeance and wrath for wrath and render evil for evil. You can just faithfully keep serving the Lord. Did you know if you really believe that, it can just about eliminate all of your arguing between you and your wife. I didn't say all of it. There might be a time for righteous indignation. But as you go through here, and it talks about confessing our sins one to another, praying for one another, and that love covers a multitude of sins and all these wonderful things. But as you go through here, you'll find out that, yes, faith without works is dead. To the believer means you're not producing any works. The faith of a Christian in the Lord is an active thing. It, it produces something. What are you producing in your life that would give any evidence that you love the Lord? So you can still be a Christian with no evidence whatsoever. Because it's a spiritual birth. Did God leave you here so that you could uh, manifest or give evidence of what Christ means to you? Or none whatsoever. He just wants you to live here and you will become a secret service Christian. Nobody knows. I think God wants us to speak up, to stand up. And so therefore, he explains all this in his word. Look in verse 26 of chapter 2. For as the body without the spirit is dead, try doing something without your body. Can't do too much, can you? Are you still there? You're still alive. I mean, you can still be, up, uh, you know, you've got a spirit and soul. You didn't cease to be just because your body isn't moving. But God wants you to use this body to produce something. He wants you to walk right, talk right. See, when you get to chapter 3, it deals with the that little fiery thing called the tongue. Boy, isn't that a dangerous little item. That's one of the hardest things that any man can ever learn to discipline. God says, well, in verse 8, But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. And yet here you are, and here I am, as a child of God, and he says, out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. Brethren, he says there in verse 10, my brethren, these things ought not so to be. So evidently there are children of God that are saying good things and bad things. Living right, living wrong. 
He said, it ought not to be. But it does show you that a child of God is still a child of God, even when he doesn't live like a child of God. But as a child of God, I believe it's the will of God for us to live like a child of God. Don't you agree? Let's pray, shall we? Our Father, we thank you so much for your blessings upon us. Lord, there's so much that needs to be said. And I pray, Lord, even though at times it seems like I'm hard. Lord, you know I don't mean to hurt or offend anybody. But I do want people to wake up and to listen to what your word has to say. I don't like it when people just always use excuses. Always covering for themselves. Never admitting blame. Never confessing anything. Never talking to you about some of their problems and their shortcomings, their weaknesses. But Father, we as your children are to encourage one another. And I pray, Lord, that what I've said today would be a blessing to each person here. That they would examine their own life. And to have the pure religion, as your word talks about. That outward manifestation that's done in honesty and in sincerity. Bless each one and bless the service to follow. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.